We're going to be spending the next few minutes of the morning show talking about one of the country's most legendary football coaches. Legendary and yet largely unknown to the general public. And in many respects, you know, that's kind of an interesting contradiction in terms. But really, legendary is the only way to describe the legacy of Lewis Cook, Jr. He has been a high school coach uh, in Louisiana for several decades now and has amassed a a very, very impressive uh, win-loss record. But much more important than that and much more important uh, to him uh, and to his admirers is the impact that he has had on the young men who have come through his program. And uh, that is the focus of a really great new book called Coach of a Lifetime, the story of Lewis Cook, Jr., legendary high school football coach. The author of this book is Galen White, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with Galen White on a couple of previous occasions. He's uh, written a total of of, of six books uh, related to various athletic endeavors. We spoke about his book, Handsome Ransom Jackson, Accidental Big Leaguer. We also talked about his books, uh, Left on Base in the Bush League and The Best Little Baseball Town in the World. Uh, This most recent book, which is published by Roman and Littlefield, again, is titled Coach of a Lifetime, the story of Lewis Cook Jr., legendary high school football coach. And Galen White, we we, uh, welcome you back to the morning show. It's always good to talk with you, Greg. You your interviews are fun because I know you read the book. <laughs> I take pleasure in reading the books, and especially when the book is as interesting as this one and when it uh, chronicles the life and legacy of, of someone as extraordinary as, uh, as this particular coach. Uh, tell us, first of all, how you first became aware of Lewis Cook Jr. and the very special things that he was doing at uh, Notre Dame High School in the heart of Louisiana. My last book, which was on baseball, the best little baseball town in the world, and that was Crowley, Louisiana in the 1950s. Ron Guidry, known as Louisiana Lightning, is the best-known player in this area. I wanted him to endorse the book, but I didn't know Guidry, so how do I get Guidry to do that? Coach Cook played baseball with Ron Guidry at University of Southwestern Louisiana. So Coach Cook helped me uh, get that endorsement from uh, Ron Guidry. And in the process of that, uh, we had several conversations, which led to me asking him, uh, have you ever thought about doing a book? And I asked that question. In a way, I was compelled to ask that question. I don't know, Greg, whether I hear voices, but there was something compelling me to ask him because the stories that he was telling Orlando Thomas who played for him at Crowley High School and went on to play in the pros a story about Jake DeHome and then some other stories that he told and they were always about other people but there were things that came out in these stories that reminded me of two, two of my favorite coaches growing up I grew up in Los Angeles my favorite coach was John Wooden the UCLA basketball coach won 10 NCAA titles known for the pyramid of success. And then my favorite football coach was Bud Wilkerson. I went to the University of Oklahoma. My freshman year was Bud Wilkerson's last year. That dates me. But the Oklahoma Sooners under Bud Wilkerson still have 
the all-time winning uh, streak, 47 in a row. So those two men were great coaches. They were fine gentlemen. They put faith first. They 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 produced principled players uh, overall, and they they not only had winners on the on the court or in the field, but they also had winners in life. So. In, in talking with Coach Cook, there were qualities that both uh, John Wooden and uh, Bud Wilkinson had that I could see in Coach Cook. He just has this uh, presence about him. I write in the book uh, where a gentleman by the name of Julius Scott, he coached Johnny Manziel in high school. And Julius Scott took upon himself to travel the country to interview uh, the various successful coaches and how they became successful. And so Julius Scott observed that, <clears throat> that um, Coach Cook, when you're in a room with him, it's like it was said about Mother Teresa. You feel like you're the only person in that room. You're the only person that exists at that moment in the eyes then of Mother Teresa. That's the way you feel in the presence of Coach Cook. He makes you feel like you're the most important person on earth. And he's a, oh, by the way, a great listener. I'll give you another story. And this just happened, Greg. My youngest son, who took the cover photograph, an accomplished photographer, he was on a, a camping in the mountains here last, about a week ago. He was bitten by an insect. He developed a high temperature, wound up in ICU. About two days after that, uh, there's a game, last Friday night's game, uh, coach, um, there's a there's a lightning delay. We're in the locker room. The players are in the gym. I'm sitting in the locker room, kind of lost in thought. I'm by myself. Coach sees me. He comes over, sits down, takes his headset off. We both sit there. We're silent for about a couple minutes. And he says, Rory, that's the name of my son. Is he out of ICU? I thought, how amazing is that? That this accomplished, successful, legendary coach at that moment was thinking about my son. Wow. Hmm. There's, there's, you can't say anything more than that because that is so personal. And uh, he would do that at that time during a lightning delay. Hmm. So that just tells you what Coach Cook is like. Wow, it sure does. As does your 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 wonderful book that uh, that explores so many facets of his life, his background, and what uh, what his values have been through the course of his long, distinguished career uh, as as a coach. Uh, you mentioned, I think, uh, in the prologue to the book, that you interviewed uh, one hundred and eighteen different people about Coach uh, Lewis Cook. And I should think that had to be such an amazing pleasure. And I, I suspect that the vast majority of those 118 were actually players and former players who have actually worked under his careful tutelage and mentorship. Yes. And the players who I would say most loved him were the black players who played for him at Crowley High School. He, he's coached at three different high schools. He coached at Rain High School where he – uh, uh, grew up in Rain, Louisiana. Rain is about 10 miles from Crowley, 
at a Crowley, and there's Crowley High School, a public school, in Notre Dame, a uh, private school. So he started his career at Rain High School, then went and spent four years as an assistant at the University of Southwestern Louisiana. Then he returned uh, to high school coaching, went to Crowley High. What was interesting about this is that Crowley High had a 21-game losing streak when he uh, took over there. Five years later, they're playing for the state championship. Then he left Crowley High to go back to college coaching, again, to University of Southwestern Louisiana. There he coached um, an outstanding quarterback, recruited and coached, Jake DeHolm, who went on. Uh, he was the first quarter, uh, He led the Carolina Panthers to their first Super Bowl. He had a great college career. And also he coached Brandon Stokely, who was the son of the head coach, Nelson Stokely. And Brandon played 15 years in the NFL. So he coached all those guys at USL, as well as Orlando Thomas, who he had previously coached in high school. And so the Orlando Thomas story is um, a powerful one. And it's sort of throughout the book. It, it comes also at the end in a chapter called 42, because Orlando Thomas, in high school, he wore the number 13. But University of Southwestern Louisiana, where he became an All-American safety, he wore the number 42. And then with the Minnesota Vikings, he wore the number 42 there again. Well, by the way, he was the 42nd pick in, in the 1995 NFL draft. And unfortunately, Orlando died at the age 42 of Lou Gehrig's disease, the same age his father died. So that, that chapter, called 42, tells the story of Orlando and Coach Cook and, how, and their father-son relationship. The title of the book, The Coach of a Lifetime, comes from a statuette by the same name that Orlando gave Coach Cook. Orlando wanted to do something else for him something perhaps financial. Coach wouldn't take it. He said, save your money for retirement. So this Coach of a Lifetime statuette is the title of the book, and I think it's very fitting. I love that, and uh, I love the uh, cavalcade of great players who have uh, just glowing things to say about this man that has meant so much to them and meant made such a difference in their lives. We're talking with Galen White about his book, Coach of a Lifetime, the story of Lewis Cook Jr., legendary high school football coach. You've already mentioned the fact that uh, Lewis Cook uh, ha- has, has a, 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 a legacy of, of, of working very well uh, uh, with black players, and, and, it, and it sounds like at least part of, of, of where his shall we say, racial openness came from, was his own father. And I suppose that's even more noteworthy than, than Lewis Cook's attitudes regarding race. But, but the fact that his father, back in an era when racism, of course, was so predominant in the Deep South, uh, his father was someone who uh, had very open and warm relationships with uh, especially the, the, the black mechanics that, uh, that worked for him. But you also tell us about Lewis Cook's father, that he was a very exacting critic of, of young Lewis's athletic exploits, and that when Lewis would come home from a game, uh, he was sort of grilled by his father, uh, one critique after another. And so uh, I really appreciate the fact that you take the time to give us kind of a full portrait of Lewis Cook Jr.'s father, and uh, and and it and in some ways it, it helps us appreciate all the more 
who Lewis Cook Jr. is. There's a scene in the movie October Sky. Did you ever see that movie, Greg? Yes. That's about the young man who went on to become a rocket scientist. Absolutely. Wonderful film. Right. And his father was a coal uh, mine manager. That's one of uh, Coach Cook's favorite movies. And there's a scene in that movie where the the young man goes to uh, his father, who's getting ready to go down into the mine. And he invites him to come out and see this big launch that is being planned. And he goes up to his father, invites him. His father says he's too busy. And then he starts to leave, and his father calls out to him and says something about, well, you got to meet your hero, Werner von Braun. The young man turned around and went back and says, he's not my hero. You're my hero. And it turned out the father went out and saw the rocket launch. When Coach Cook sees that scene, he tears up. And I think he does because that relation, that scene uh, kind of captures what the relationship was with his father. His father did not want him to go into coaching. His father was best friends with a man named B.I. Moody. give you an idea about B.I. Moody, the, the uh, business administration school at the University of Louisiana Lafayette is named after him. So he was a very successful businessman. He was an accountant to begin with but he went on to become very successful in business. Um, Coach Cook could have had a job with B.I. Moody. And what's kind of funny, and I write about this in the book, is uh, at one point in there, uh, Coach uh, had one more class in accounting to do at UL. And, of course, uh, uh, by this time he had told his father he wanted to pursue coaching. And B.I. Moody happened to be in his father's dealership. And uh, when B.I. Moody heard that, uh, uh, Louis was uh, had just one accounting class to do. He said, "Well, Louis, you go ahead and take that accounting class, and once you get this coaching out of your system, you come see me." Well, a few years ago, Coach went to see Mr. B.I. Moody, who's still living. He's in his nineties. He went to see him, and he says, "Mr. Moody, I think I'm ready for that job." <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> he has a great sense of humor, too. By the way, yeah, it's um, it's uh. You know, the mother, I mentioned the, uh, the uh, Mother Teresa and the same guy who said uh, he was like Mother Teresa in that he makes you feel like the center of the universe also said to him at one time, uh, Coach, uh, you, you coach like Jesus would have coached. And Coach Cook says, well, I don't know about that, but I'd like to know what he would have called the other night on third and one and we got stopped. <laughs> so he he downplays some of this stuff, but he he does have this. Uh, he does remind people of somebody uh, uh, with with far greater higher powers. Right. Uh, he, uh, that's just how special a man that he is. For sure. One of the most impressive things about uh, his career is what he did. Not where he has been the most. That is at Notre Dame High School, but at the high school where he coached right before that, Crowley High School. And uh, essentially what he did, and this is back in the mid-'80s, he went from a Division I quarterback coach to take over a high school team that had not won a game in two years. I, if I remember correctly, that, that team had a 21-game losing streak. You and, remember correctly. And Coach Cook 
manages to turn that team around almost in an instant. His first season, they go six and five. The next season, they go ten and two. Uh, it's just incredible to to think about what what he what he managed to do. What do you think was the key to that success that he had at Crowley High School? The talent was there, Greg. It just had not been tapped. The coaches who had been there had not done a good job of connecting with the kids. And Coach goes in, and Coach Cook goes in there, and he walks the halls, and he'd see a big guy, a guy who probably should be playing football, but he's not. He'd walk up to him and invite him to come out. Inevitably, he'd be told, well, I played football for a year and uh, decided I'm not going to play anymore. Well, come on out. This happened to one uh, uh, player named Joe Sinclair. Joe played in the band, uh, played the tuba, as I recall. Uh, Joe wasn't going to play football. He played for the previous coach and decided that's enough. He convinced Joe to come out. He gets a scholarship, winds up getting a scholarship to Michigan State. So that's the kind of things that happened. There was another uh, black player named Toby Boyd. He didn't play football at all. He played basketball. So Coach uh, Coach hadn't taken the job yet at this point. But he asked somebody who he was watching the basketball game with, uh, you know, what position does he play in football? And the guy said, well, he doesn't play football. He says, well, that explains why you're not winning any games. He went down afterwards and talked to Tracy Boyd, and he asked him, the names of uh, the head coaches in basketball and football at LSU. And immediately the young man knew the head coach, uh, head basketball coach at LSU, Dale Brown. He didn't know the name of the football coach, Bill Arnsparger. So Coach Cook said to him, well, uh, Tracy, if Dale Brown were here, not to take anything away from your basketball abilities, you're only six foot four and you're playing the post position. He would have already left this gym 10 minutes ago. Now, Coach Arnsbarger, the football coach at LSU, if he'd seen you, he'd be offering you a scholarship. So Coach Cook wound up taking the job, and he had a meeting of all the students, and essentially he was urging the the boys to come out. Where was Tracy Boyd? He was on the front row. (laughs) And he wound up playing on the team and going on to play briefly for the Patriots and in the Canadian Football League. Hmm. Incredible. I love the story, too, about when he starts at Crowley High School. And uh, the way you tell it makes it sound like it was essentially his first day. And he walks out in the field, and here are the black players over there stretching and warming up. And over there are the white players stretching and warming up, deeply segregated out on that field. And you tell us that uh, Coach Cook took the guys together and said, look, you are all the same on this football field. I mean, your the, the color of your skin does not matter on this football field. We are one team, and I do not want to see any of this racial segregation uh, when you are out on this field. You need to be one team. And it sounds like that made a tremendous difference. That was the 1996 season. What happened was Coach Cook was at Crowley High from 1985 uh, through 1991. Then he went back to the University of Southwestern Louisiana, coached four years. Then he came back to Crowley High for the 96th season, thinking that he'd be coaching his sons there. Uh, coming back to Crowley High, he didn't recognize what had happened. 
you saw this division of the players. He had a black assistant coach, a coach who, by the way, uh, he, he was told by uh, the previous coach, this is the first go-around, uh, to get rid of him and all the other assistants. Coach didn't do that. He kept this coach, Coach Don Adams. They, they call each other Chief. Well, uh, he says, Chief, what's going on here? And Coach Cook said it was like I was back in the 50s when segregation was in full force. And so, like you say, he told them. He wanted them to hold hands, black and white, hold hands. And you're a team. And I'm not going to see any more of this. And he, he is a straight shooter. And he, he told him how it was. Now, Coach Cook, his dark complexion, he's Syrian. And uh, one of the players, Grayson Augustus, who is a big lineman, went on to play at University of Southwestern Louisiana. Grayson tells the story. He said, you know, Coach is so dark-skinned, we knew he wasn't black. He didn't look white. We didn't know what he was. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I mean, it, it, it's kind of an echo of uh, of something you tell us his his father would say. There was no color with him, and uh, right. and for someone in the deep south, uh, that that is qu- quite a statement to make. Um, ultimately, of course, he and it's a painful move, but he ultimately leaves Crowley High School for Notre Dame High School, and uh, that's where he has been coaching. Uh, for the last few years with uh, tremendous distinction. And uh, and it says something about how important football is to that school that uh, in the 22-23 school year, where there were 166 boys enrolled at Notre Dame High School, 117 of them uh, went out for football. So it's obvious that a whole lot of guys want to be part of this uh, particular sort of community within a community. You tell us about this school, and it's a private high school, a Catholic high school, as one might guess from the name, that this is what you might think of as a private school with a public school mentality. And at another point in the book, you talk about the blue-collar mentality of many of the the students and their families who are at uh, Notre Dame High School. Tell us more about that public school mentality of Notre Dame High School and how that has made a difference in terms of this being such a wonderful fit for Coach Cook. The parents of the kids are primarily rice farmers and crawfish farmers. They are blue-collar workers. Babe Ruth visited Crowley back in 1921. There was a quote where he talks about the city of Crowley having grit. Well, it still has grit. And the, the uh, people who live here and their kids have continued that tradition. Right before I started the book on Coach Cook, uh, one of his players, a promising player, I might add, was killed, murdered, downtown rain, about a little bit after midnight. It was a senseless killing. He hadn't done anything. It was a case of mistaken identity. The trial still hasn't been held. But to see this and I saw it. I was here promoting my baseball book to see this community rally around that family. I mean, there were men in churches crying at the memorial services. Players from the past at Notre Dame who hadn't, uh, who had not been there for years, came back to support the team that was having to uh, go through this now. 
just the outpouring of of uh, support and love for this tragedy that had happened. That's the kind of community that it is. They pull together in rough times. Now, this is an area where you get hurricanes. Now, this is an area where tornadoes blow through. They know adversity. And so in a time of adversity, they pull together and they get through it. When I first started this book, too, Hurricane Ida blew through here, actually a little bit uh, to the east of here. And I remember I was in a coach's office. He had the Weather Channel on. And he says to me, when Jim Cantore shows up, it's time to get out. <laughs> so that he has this great sense of humor. Uh, he sees things in a way that, uh, well, most of us see it, but then he has this little twist of humor to it. And, you know, uh, they start at that point. He and his assistant, Jimmy McCleary, uh, who's been with him 25 years. Now think about that. A high school coach who's been with another high school coach for 25 years. He had another assistant who had been with him 24 years. That's loyalty. Hmm. He had an administrative assistant who was with him almost 20 years. That's loyalty. That's not money because you're not getting paid uh, the big bucks at the high school level. Far from it. <laughs> it says a lot about their devotion to, uh, to the cause and to uh, being mentors and leaders for these, for these young men. And by the way, right. uh, with that story of Garrison Gautreau, who is – tragically killed uh, in the case of mistaken identity, as you just said. There's a beautiful photograph in your book in which uh, four of his teammates honor him uh, at a home game in the fall of 2021, uh, just five months after that shooting occurred, and they are standing at midfield holding the jersey of this young man, uh, holding the, the, uh, the jersey of number 45 in honor of their, of their fallen comrade. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, one more uh, moment from ultimately a really inspiring story, uh, although uh, with, a, of course, this uh, terrible tragedy at the, at the heart of it. I also wanted to mention real quick and give you just a minute or so to expand on the fact that in addition to uh, a lot of, of, of young men who have come through this football program doing well in the world of football, you, uh, you tell us about several uh, wonderful coaches from Notre Dame High School, I'm sorry, players from Notre Dame High School who have gone on to become priests, which is also a really cool legacy of Coach Cook. Well, the title of that chapter is The Ultimate Goal is Heaven. And Coach likes to set goals. And at the beginning of the season, this is usually in August, the first practices, he gathers all the players. He does this after every practice, but at this particular practice, he gathered all the players to establish their goals for the year. And this young man, Andrew Schumacher, he was a sophomore. His brother had played for Coach Cook. <clears throat> he's uh, listening to Coach, and he's expecting him to say, well, the ultimate goal is to get to the Superdome. That's where the championship games are played. That's not what Coach said. He said the ultimate goal is to get to heaven. Andrew Schumacher remembered that. And years later, uh, after he became ordained and uh, giving his uh, first um, uh, a homily, he mentions that story of s sitting there, listening to Coach Cook, telling the team the ultimate goal is to get to heaven. So he's had uh, – he's it's now up to four. It was three when I was writing the book uh, who were in the priesthood. 
There was one who coached for him for a while. He was a player, Nick Ware. He was a player and then went on to coach. And, and so uh, one day after practice, uh, Nick was walking off the field with one of the other assistants and happened to mention that he was thinking about <clears throat> going into the priesthood. So this other coach uh, hustles over to Coach Cook, and he says, uh, Coach, Nick says he, uh, he's uh, getting the call. And Coach says, <clears throat> if he's getting the call, that's from the big guy. The little guy is not messing with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love that. It's a great line and uh, says so much about uh, Lewis Cook and what is important for him. And, of course, that's uh, the, the heart and soul of this wonderful book and the fact that, as he likes to say, winning isn't everything. Winning the right way is. And all of the ways in which Lewis Cook Jr. has sought to lead uh, the young men under his uh, guidance uh, to the best of his abilities. The book is Coach of a Lifetime, the story of Lewis Cook Jr., legendary high school football coach. Uh, the book is uh, published by Roman and Littlefield and includes a, a lovely forward by legendary collegiate coach Nick Saban. Galen White, thank you so much for writing yet another wonderful book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. What a pleasure. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate it.